Well, we finally made it, didn't we? We made it. You know, uh, 2020 was one of those years uh, that kind of leaves a bad taste in your mouth, right? It's one of those times that, that you look back and you're going, I just, I don't like that. You know, growing up, uh, in my family, my mom made a lot of different meals for us, and, and some of those meals I really enjoyed, and some of them I did not so much. It's not that I was picky, but I was really picky. So um, I, I just, there were some specific meals I did not like, and there was one meal that my mom made quite often because most of my family loved it, but my younger brother Jonathan and I could not stand it. It was my mom's beef stew. Now, I'm going to just put a disclaimer here. I love my mother, okay, but her beef stew... <laughs> There's something wrong with that. There was something not right with it. And, and some people think that I'm, I'm just weird because I don't like food that most people around me like. I don't like things like cheese. I don't really like cheese. And people think that there's something wrong with me. And maybe there is. But here's the thing. With my mom's beef stew, it was, it, there was just something. I could, not, I could not eat that. It was just not good. It hurt a little bit to try to eat it. And like I said, I love my mom. But she knows that I couldn't do it. I would, I would take this, and my parents had this rule of if you had food in front of you, you could not leave until you ate uh, what was in front of you. And so I had a bowl of beef stew in front of me, and I'd fill my mouth with as much of it as I could and, and ask to go to the bathroom so I could spit it out into the toilet and try to get rid of it. I did whatever I could to avoid it. And this one particular night, Jonathan and I are sitting at the table. It has been hours since dinner was served, and we still have full cold bowls of beef stew in front of us as everybody else is now getting ready for bed. It's that late. And we've been sitting there going, what are we going to do? Just agonizing through this. We came up with a plan. We've got to do this. We've got to get this done. So while one of us kept watch, the other went over to the side of the room and lifted up the cover on the heat vent. And we dumped our beef stew right down the heat vent. It took my mom years to know what had happened. Uh, The house smelled different uh, after that. But I think of, of things like this, and, and I've been to Honduras a few times on mission trips, and what I found is that while I was born here, my taste buds are for some, they're from somewhere else. That's just how it works. Because uh, when I'm down in Honduras and Tegucigalpa with, with groups of people, they always seem to get sick on the food that's from there, and it's the best food I've ever had in my life. So that's just the thing. I was made for more of a spicy diet than my mom's beef stew. Uh, but years like 2020 tend to be what I like to call beef stew years in our lives, right? They can leave this bad taste taste. There's something that you did not really want to deal with, and they leave us emotionally drained, physically weak, and spiritually bland. And I'd, I'd love to focus on those first two things uh, here today, but we're not going to. We're going to look at that third one, the spiritual blandness, because I believe that if we can focus on this wholeheartedly, I believe that it will help bring the other two where they need to be. So we're going to take some time looking at this. And, and as a church, I believe that we focus heavily on what I like to call gospel advancement. That's what this church has been about. This includes evangelism and discipleship and missional opportunities for the body at NBC to be part of the work that God has called us to. I love this about our church. In fact, this is one of the reasons why Janae and I felt uh, we were so excited about the call to come here was because we knew that this was a church that was advancing the gospel. We knew that, that this was a church that was focused on seeing people saved and grow while reaching the next. We saw that uh, as in fruit that came from this church, and we were so excited about it. It's what drew us here. You guys have a long history of being a church on the move, striving to reach the lost, grow the reached, and send them to reach the next. 
It is incredible what God has done in this area through the willingness of church leaders and congregation members to to pray for God to move, to care for the community, and then to share the gospel with boldness. But one thing I've noticed, though, through this last year is that there has been a worldly focus that has infiltrated our church. It's something that you could point out almost any year, but last year really brought it to the surface. And, And I've seen it infiltrate almost every ministry of our church it's kind of a plague, and, and the plague is me. Not me personally, but, but the idea of my importance being greater than the person's next to me. The idea that my opinions are more correct, my, my thoughts are filled with more wisdom, my actions are more impactful, my words carry more weight, my way is better, my, 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 me, me, me. This plague that is uh, really going through our church is not a difficult one to eradicate. It's not a hard battle that we face, but it's one that we have to be aware of and start fighting against now before we dive into our focus for today. So I want to read to you the attitude that we're called to have towards one another uh, from Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5 as we start today so that you can see this heart to begin and we can get rid of this attitude of, of my self-worth being more than somebody else's and start learning and growing together. All right, so Philippians chapter 2 starting in verse 3, it says this, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourselves. Do not look out only for your own interest, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Paul goes on to to write about this attitude of Christ who who then considered that his life, uh, that your life was valuable enough that he should give his up for yours. That he would be willing to sacrifice himself for you. He, He saw your importance as that much more than his. Absolutely incredible thing to see, and we're called to have that same mindset for each other, to consider each other in that way. I want to challenge you on this to be thinking about it. We, we have to have this mindset, and in that mindset with each other, we see the spiritual plague of me end, and, and we see 2021 becoming a powerful year of gospel advancement in this church. I want to see this go on, and when I say gospel advancement, I do not mean just evangelism. Evangelism is part of gospel advancement, but I'm going to share with you today uh, some biblically-based elements that we have implemented in our student ministry as well as personally in our lives to see gospel advancement become uh, more of a a real reality in the way that we live. Throughout the book of Acts, you're going to see these specific elements played out as kind of the building block strategy for the early church. And I believe that as a church, we are striving uh, to see these things implemented, implemented, but one thing that we really are missing is the idea that we must be strategic in our thinking on it, because our enemy definitely is. You see, uh, we look at this last year, and a lot of people say, oh, yeah, in 2020, it was easy to see Satan at work. We blame him for a lot of big things that went on, but, but here's the thing that, that I really see from this last year is I think a lot of the bigger things that went on probably were more the result of what we have done and unless the result of what he was doing, he just took the opportunity that we set up for him. See, that's how he works. He's extremely strategic. He has things in place ready for the opportunity to come up. And once it does, he is ready to strike. He's ready to attack. And we walk right into the trap over and over and over again. And we need to understand how strategic and smart he is in his planning. Because if we're, going to un- if we're going to step into the war, 
that, that is going on around us, we're going to have to be just as strategic. And we're going to have to be thinking differently. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we see Paul talking to the church in Corinth about restoring a man who's, who's coming out of sin. And he's talking about the power of forgiveness, but he also gives them this warning as they come alongside him. I'm saying we need to be aware of how the enemy works here. He says in 2 Corinthians 11, so that Satan will not outsmart us for we are familiar with his evil schemes. What he's getting at here is is the fact that that this happens often. We get outsmarted thinking that we're, we're strong enough or that we understand enough. Or that we don't really need to plan, we just need to do things. And he outsmarts us all the time. It happens. But we need to be aware and, and we need to be prepared and we need to be thinking ahead so that we are not easily outsmarted. Because he is a schemer, he's been planning, he's been thinking, he's been working, and he is ready. The scripture describes Satan as a lion who is prowling around looking for someone to devour. He's looking for opportunities and he will make the most of them. So we need to be thinking in this way because we are in the midst of a war for the lost souls of this world and our enemy is strategically scheming so that he is ready for every possible opportunity that comes up. So we must be strategic in our defense and attack. So we're going to look at some strategic elements to implement right now at the beginning of 2021 because while this last year a lot of us had this attitude of I cannot wait for 2020 to end, right? We, we kind of saw this go through uh, our entire world of everybody going, okay, 2020, I'm over it, I'm done with it. I, I want to make this year a year where instead of us, it's the devil who is the one pu- uh, just begging that it would end. I want to see at the end of this year the enemy going, can we just get done with 2021 because I cannot stand uh, against what this church is doing. I want them to get on a different focus because I can't do anything. How awesome would it be to flip the whole thing on him and have it be a year that he, he begs for it to be done? I believe that if we can live out these truths we're going to look at today, if we can strive towards these things, we will see that happen. And so let's work together, let's battle together, and let's start preparing strategically for this year to be a year of gospel advancement in our, ourselves, in our families, in our life groups, and in our church. So we're going to start by looking at seven values of gospel advancing life. The, the first value that we're going to look at, value number one, is intercessory prayer fuels the gospel advancing life. Now, some people get confused by this term intercessory. They're not sure what that means. It's a simple term, actually. It just means that I'm doing something on behalf of someone. I'm interceding on their behalf. I am standing between them and their enemy or standing between them and the one who would bring judgment on them. And I am pleading on their behalf. To give you an understanding of what's going on right now in heaven, Jesus intercedes on your behalf. He hears your requests and intercedes on your behalf to the Father regularly. At the same time, when you don't even know what to pray, the Holy Spirit of God intercedes on your behalf with moans too deep for words, is what Scripture tells us. So you have two intercessors regularly going to the Father with your prayers, with you in mind, with your heart, your struggles, interceding on your behalf. And we are called to do the same for each other and for the lost around us. We are called to intercede, to be praying for our lost friends and family members, those that don't know Jesus, those that that went through this last year without the hope of the promise of Christ, of the salvation that we find through him to be praying that God would reach them, to be praying that we would have the boldness to open up our mouths and to care for them and to ask about where they stand with Christ, 
to, to pray for each other as believers, that we would stand up in boldness. I see this example in Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 24, where we're stepping in on a scene where the apostles have just been before the Sanhedrin, the ruling council. They're being accused of heresy, which according to the law uh, of, of the Jews, they were, spe- uh, they were preaching heresy. They were teaching that Jesus was the Messiah and that salvation was found only through him. And that the law had been fulfilled through Jesus. They're, they're teaching all of these things. And so they're being pulled in and told, you have to stop. You cannot teach this anymore. And then they were threatened. And these are the same men who, who uh, pushed to have Jesus executed. So you can imagine what kind of threats these guys are receiving for preaching in the name of Jesus. We will kill you. We will come at you. We will end this. You don't want to face us. You don't want to cross us. They go back to the assembled believers, and that's where we step in. They give the report of what happens, and in verse 24 of Acts 4 is where we join them. When they heard the report, all the believers lifted their voices together and prayed to God. O sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them, you spoke long ago by the Holy Spirit through our ancestor David, your servant, saying, why were the nations so angry? Why did they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepared for battle. The rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. In fact, this has happened here in this very city for Herod Antipas, Pontius Pilate, the governor, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were all united against Jesus, your holy servant, whom you anointed. But everything they did was determined beforehand according to your will. And now, O Lord, hear their threats and give us your servants great boldness in preaching your word. Stretch out your hand with healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. After this prayer, the meeting place shook, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Then they preached the word of God with boldness. I love this picture of intercessory prayer. And maybe you you read that and go, I didn't see them interceding, but they were. They're praying for each other, interceding on behalf of each other, that they would have boldness, that they would be passionate, that they would stand up no matter what was to come. They were caring for each other and praying for the apostles who were having to face this head on. They're praying for opportunities with the lost around them to still happen, to still come up. They're praying, and, and you can just picture what's going on in this room as they come before God. God together as one assembly, praying for all this to go on, praying for these things to happen, and the room physically shakes by the movement of the Holy Spirit that began when they prayed intercessory prayer. You know, one thing I notice about this prayer, and I absolutely love it, they've just been threatened, and here's what they don't say. They don't say, God, would you keep us safe? They don't say, God, would you help us to feel more secure? God, would you, would you work to bring rights into this area that we would, we would have the right to meet freely? No, here's what they say. God, hear their threats and give us boldness to match them. Give us the boldness to stand up and face these, no problem, no matter what. Give us the boldness to do what you've called us to do. By your spirit, fill us with the courage to step out and, and to accomplish what you've set us out to do. That's the the attitude that they have. They're they're interceding on behalf of each other and they're praying to God, help us to not abandon the mission you've sent us on because of fear. God, give us boldness. And he does. He responds. I wanna challenge you to be thinking about intercessory prayer, to be thinking about the people around you in this church, in your life group, in your family that know Christ, that need boldness. 
and we need to be praying for them, but we need to be praying for the lost as well, those friends and family members around us who don't know Christ. So here's what we're going to do. I need you to pull out your phone. I won't be offended. I work with students. Pull out your phone. It's okay, all right? They sometimes send me messages in the middle of me talking. My family does too. They're really nice about that, so I'm sure I'll get messages from my mom about her beef stew here. But pull out your phone or grab something to write on, and I want you to just real quickly type out or write out the name of one, one person in your circle of influence who you're unsure if they know Christ. One person. Maybe that person is you. Maybe you're unsure. I'm going to challenge you to be bold enough to just put your name down. You don't have to hand it to somebody else. This is just, just you and God right now. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to take just 10 seconds and we're going to go before God and intercede on their behalf. I'm going to ask you to just pray quietly to God. Pray for boldness. Pray for opportunities and pray for their salvation. Let's take just 10 seconds. Let's intercede on behalf of each other and behalf of, of these, the lost that we've just put their names down. Let's pray to God about this. God, I pray that you would shake us, that you would fill us with your spirit, God, and send us from here with boldness, God. We thank you for the names that you brought to our hearts, these people that that are in our lives, God, and I pray, God, that you would give us the boldness to reach out to them, that you would give us the words, God, to, to clearly articulate the gospel message, that you would help us to care for them, God, not to just make this about accomplishing something, but make this about them, their salvation, God. God, we pray for them that you would draw them in by your spirit as only you can, and God, by the power of Jesus' death and resurrection, God, would you save them as only you can. We trust you, we look to you, God, and we look forward to what you're gonna do, God, as you move In Jesus' name, amen. Intercessory prayer fuels it. You take the fuel out of a vehicle and it will not go very long. We need to understand the importance of this and I would encourage you to take that piece of paper, to take that name and and to put it somewhere that you're gonna see regularly. Set an alarm on your phone that goes off once a day reminding you to just take 10 seconds to pray for their salvation. Put it in your car or somewhere that you're gonna see it regularly without getting distracted while you're driving. But every time you see it, stop and pray for their salvation. You can grab, there's an app called Life in Six Words that we're going to talk about a little bit later. But in this app, you can put the names of of family members and friends who don't know Christ in your cause circle, focused on the cause of Christ, and set a reminder every day to be praying for them. I would challenge you to utilize these kind of tools to keep this in front of you, because it's important for us to be thinking this way. We're called to it. You're going to see that more as we keep going. Value number two, relational evangelism drives the gospel advancing life. Now, this is where some people just check out. They're like, okay, I can't do that. I'm not an evangelist. I don't stand up in front of people. I don't, I can't, there's no way that I'm going to be able to do that. What, what you have to understand is right now what I'm doing is called a presentation. There's not much relational going on here. But, but in this, 
relational evangelism is more from the idea of a conversation. And, and it actually points to the idea of somebody that you already have relationship with, that you would start utilizing elements of that relationship to start pointing them to Christ, to start helping them understand things about Jesus, to start asking them questions about what they believe. This last year, I, I did a training here at the church called the AAA Cafe, where we went through a method of being able to bring up the gospel in a relational way, asking people questions. Asking them questions about what they believe. Asking until you find something about what they believe that you can admire without condoning a false belief. And then after you admire it, it's amazing, especially if there's already relationship there. It is amazing how often you get the opportunity to then admit why you have your faith in Jesus. The fact that you were so messed up and there was nothing you could do to redeem yourself that you were so far gone and there was no hope for you, but God and his love for you sent his son Jesus who died in your place paying the debt that you owed so that you could be saved, you could be restored in that relationship with God. We need to, we need to know the gospel message. This is a hard thing in the church today because we, we don't really think of ourselves as having to be much involved. We attend But I want to challenge you uh, on this. If you know Jesus, if you are saved, the gospel message has not lost its power for you. You didn't just need it then, you need it now. We need to hold on to this. This should be our anthem. This should be our war cry. Whenever the enemy attacks, whenever things come up, we have a hope because of this message of the gospel. We need to know it. We need to be able to articulate it well. So I would encourage you, Figure out a way to learn it. One of the best ways to learn how to articulate the gospel is by articulating the gospel. Sit down with another believer and talk it through. Start putting it into words. Go out and start sitting down with somebody that you've been wanting to share with and start talking it through. It doesn't have to be perfect. It's not about your ability. It's about the power of the Holy Spirit at work and our willingness. So I challenge you, start doing something with it. There's some cards out on the table there that have the gospel put with an acrostic. Makes it really simple. We call it life in six words. It's also in that app with some incredible tools for relational evangelism. But it's an easy way to remember the full message of the gospel and to be able to articulate it in a relational way and have conversation about it with people. Use these tools. Get to know the message of the gospel. It is extremely important for us to do this. Colossians 4, 4 through 6, we see this uh, explained out by Paul in the challenge to the church. He says, pray that I will proclaim this message as clearly as I should and live wisely among those who are not believers. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversations be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. He doesn't say, let your presentations be informative and authoritative. He says, let your conversations be gracious and attractive. Be relational. Sit down and actually care for somebody. Don't just care on whether or not you convert them. Care about them. Know them. Spend time with them so that you will have the right response. Be ready. Live wisely. Proclaim boldly, as boldly and clearly as you should. Make the most of every opportunity because just like I mentioned earlier, our enemy definitely will. So we need to make the most of these opportunities. 
The next value, this is one that people feel like gets kind of lost when it comes to more of an individual or family or life group scale. They think this only applies to a larger group, but it really doesn't. This one is, is value number three, leaders fully embrace and model the gospel advancing life. Now, in our church context, we have a mission statement. Mitchell Berean Church exists to see people saved and grow while reaching the next, right? That's kind of a a condensed version of it. But if you came to this church and did not see the leadership living out that mission statement, it would confuse you, wouldn't it? You'd kind of be like, why is that our mission statement if that's not what our church is about? But when the leadership of the church fully embraces and models this, it's really easy to follow right along with it. Well, when we're talking about the values of a gospel-advancing ministry, we're talking about the mission and vision that we are called to go on and be on by Christ himself. When we model that on a family scale, our parents, our children can follow that. They see it. I think about times with my dad getting to to go out and do evangelism growing up as a teenager— the time of my life where I kind of thought, this, this stuff doesn't really work that well. I don't think it does. And then I'd go with my dad and go, oh, it actually does. Because he would say, no, come, we're going to go do this. And he would do this, and then he'd go, okay, you're going to do it. And he'd walk away, and that was horrible. But it was also exactly what I needed to realize, man, I've got to do this. And I needed someone to lead that out. Someone to set that example who embraced and modeled it and then said, now I want you to do it. He was discipling me is what that is. This is where discipleship comes in. If you are in a position of leading a life group, leading your family, leading even one friend that that you're trying to disciple, you are in a position where you need to be embracing and modeling the call of Christ to make disciples who make disciples and, and model it so that they can, so that they can grow in it, they can understand it, they can lead this out. I just want to challenge you to be thinking this way. Jesus said in Luke 640, students are not greater than their teacher, but the student who is fully trained will become like the teacher. What you model, they will follow. I love right now that if I went upstairs and asked my son Micah, he's three, I asked him, what is it that you want to be when you grow up? He says, well, right now I have doctor stuff, so I want to be a doctor because I have doctor toys. But when I grow up, I want to be a dad who tells people about Jesus. That's what he wants to be when he grows up because that's what he sees modeled for him. It's encouraging and exciting to see him recognizing that, seeing that reflected. It's exciting to me to see it and I want to challenge you. Do, Do you model this? Do you embrace and model what you're called to? Value number four, a disciple multiplication strategy guides the gospel advancing life. This is where we have to get strategic because here's the thing. You just prayed for somebody to to come to know Christ. You prayed for opportunities. What happens if this next week you get to lead them to Christ or they call you and say, I just put my faith in Jesus because God actually answers prayer. And he starts moving and, and they call you and say, so what do I do next? Are you ready? Do you have a plan? Do you have an idea of where you'd even go with them to help disciple them? Have you thought that way? We need to be strategic because the enemy is thinking that way and going, if they do come to Christ, I know exactly how to derail them. Do we know how to shore them up? Discipleship is a confusing thing in the church today. Most churches have no idea what it means to make a disciple. We've lost that. We know how to fill a room. We don't know how to make disciples. But making a a disciple is easy. The idea of making a disciple is this. I'm showing someone what it looks like to follow Jesus. That's it. I will follow Jesus and I invite them 
to see how that looks in my life. We need to understand that that's the simplicity of it. But we do need to be aware of it and we need to be strategic in how we get that going. Have you ever sat down and looked to see if there's any discipleship tools available to you? We have tons of them here at the church. Are you ready if your friend comes to Christ to to know who you can ask to help get that going? You, You need to be thinking this way. We need to all be thinking this way. This is what we're called to to make disciples who make disciples. If I'm not thinking strategically about it, it's not just gonna happen. We have to plan for this. We have to get ready for this. I love seeing uh, the example in Acts 19 of what Paul does to change his strategy to go from making converts to making disciples. I want you to see this, Acts 19, starting in verse eight. Then Paul went to the synagogue and preached boldly for the next three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some became stubborn, rejecting his message and publicly speaking against the way. So Paul left the synagogue and took the believers with him. Then he held daily discussions at the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for the next two years so that people throughout the province of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. I love what you see here. He's got this platform in, in a church-like setting where he's getting to stand up and present the gospel. He's presenting the truth about Jesus and he is explaining it well enough that people are coming to know Christ. They're putting their faith in Christ. We're seeing the number of believers grow in that, that context, but there are also those that they label as stubborn who stand up and are getting to speak against what Paul is teaching. In that context, what's going on is something like this. Paul would be standing up and explaining this out to people who are listening, and then somebody else would get up and everyone would listen while they refuted what Paul said. Paul realized after three months, this is not making disciples. This is causing confusion. It's causing disunity and it's causing frustration. So he grabbed the believers and said, we're gonna go somewhere else. And he changed the full picture of what he was doing. He goes from preaching to them to sitting daily with them in a lecture hall and just having open discussion, answering questions, asking questions, having just discussion. And and we see that after three months, he had some converts. After two years of sitting down and talking with people, the entire province of Asia has heard the gospel. Discipleship was happening. People were growing and understanding and boldly going out and making disciples. Absolutely incredible to see it happen like that. So I want to challenge you, think strategically and don't be afraid to change if you see it's not working. We need to be thinking this way as individuals so that our life groups, our families, and our church can start moving in this direction strategically. We just went through a series on the four chairs of discipleship, talking about the four calls of Jesus to his disciples, and and we use tools like that to help us understand what it is to make a disciple, what it looks like, what being a disciple really is about. And I want to invite you to to sign up and be part of, coming up on the 10th, we're starting our, our discipleship core class. We have all of our core classes launching again then, but there's one on discipleship, being a disciple maker. And I would encourage you to get involved, get signed up and go through that. Understand more of what it means to be part of the work that we're called to, to be part of the mission of what this church is about. That is something that I think we, we need to uh, not hesitate to dive into, and you will, you will be amazed, honestly, by how simple and, and incredibly fulfilling it is to start doing the work that we're called to. Value number five, a bold vision focuses the gospel-advancing life. 
Now, some people hear the word vision, and they go, okay, am I going to fall into a trance, and God's just going to speak something to me? That's not the kind of vision I'm talking about. The vision that we have here is actually something that has been given to us by Jesus. The, the mission that we are called to and the vision for how it will be accomplished were all given by Jesus. We start with the mission in Matthew 28, 19 through 20. It's very familiar. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you and be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Make disciples who make disciples. That's the mission of the church. It's what we are called to do. That, that fits directly with our mission statement here as a church. Making disciples who make disciples. That's the, the heart and attitude that we're called to have. And then Jesus gives the vision of how he wants to see this accomplished and how he's going to do this work in Acts 1.8. Where he says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He's saying this, here's the mission, here's the goal, and here's how we're going to do it. I'm going to do it through you. I'm not going to come back every two years and just kind of revamp stuff and get things going. No, I'm going to send you. I'm going to fill you with the Holy Spirit, and you're going to go, and you're going to do this and accomplish this. I think about with our youth ministry, what we've done with this, to, to look and say, okay, in our context, how, how do we apply this vision to our context? Well, we put together a vision statement that I believe really, really fits this well for our youth ministry. And here's our youth ministry's vision statement. We want to see every student in the valley hear the gospel from a friend. Some people think that that's missing some elements, but I don't really think it is. Because for every student in the valley, that's over 3,300 students, 6th through 12th graders, from Gearing to Morrill, including the homeschool co-ops. We can't leave them out. That many students... For us to see them all hear the gospel, I could say, get all of them here so that we can talk to them. But I will tell you this, this building's not big enough for that. Our youth center is definitely not big enough for that. And they're not all going to show up. But I know that the students who come to our youth center will be in school with them. will be around them. will be in sports with them. And so here's what we do. We consider our youth center to be our Jerusalem and we start reaching our students there, and students come to Christ and are discipled there, and they're reaching their friends there. And then they go from there to their Judea, to their schools. And they start sharing the gospel there and focusing there. And then they go into the community looking at events that are going on that they could do outreach at. This is their Samaria starting to reach outside of the walls of just their schools in their normal context. And then I love when I get messages from college students who are like, hey, I, I, I just got to share the gospel with my friend. I've gotten to, to share the gospel with so many people this year because it just keeps coming up over and over, and we're seeing students that are going from our small context out into the world to start reaching. We're seeing this vision played out in our context. So here's, here's the question for you. For your family, what is the context that this vision plays out in? I want to encourage you to spend some time in prayer this month about this, asking God, what, what context do we have here? How does this work? How do we apply this for our family, for our life group? We as a church have a, a large area here, and we're going to get into what that looks like here in just a moment. But I want to challenge you to be thinking this way, to be thinking differently about how we reach out, to be planning and looking at what we've been called to do. Because it will change the way that you view how you are to live as a believer, as a follower, as a disciple of Christ. 
The next value, value number six, biblical outcomes measure the gospel advancing life. Does anybody know what churches typically count? Nobody knows if they're allowed to answer. Nobody wants to answer. I call it the two B's, butts and bucks, right? So we count how many people are in the seats and how many dollars are in the plate. That's what churches typically count. And now I'm not saying that churches should not be keeping record of some of those things. Some people think that churches are just greedy. That's why they focus on just the money and counting that up. I believe that there are churches who are striving to be good stewards of what God provides. And they're trying to carry it in a way that honors him. And so that's what's going on in that. But here's the thing that that saddens me about the church in the United States. Every year more money is embezzled from the church than given to missions. Do you know that? See, it changes what your focus is on money within the church when you start hearing those things and realizing we've got our focus off a little bit. We know that uh, for Christmas Eve this year, we had just almost as many people this year for Christmas Eve services as we did last year. But here's the real question. How many people got saved during Christmas Eve services this year? Does anybody know? See, that's the thing that we need to be thinking about. Our focus is on the wrong numbers right now. We're measuring non-biblical outcome things. I'm not against knowing some of those things. But we need to start realizing that success in ministry is not measured by the number of people who come in the door. It's not measured by, by what the world would measure it by. We need to start thinking about these outcomes. I think about our students and what they're doing to measure biblical outcomes this year. They set a goal at our youth center. We have a big board up that has the number 160 on it. That's the number of people that they want to see come to Christ this year as a result of their outreach. 160 people. Written on those numbers, the names of of friends and family members who they've gotten to lead to Christ this year. It's incredible as they see that and they get to keep track of it as they're looking. They're measuring that. On the other side of our platform, we have this giant light bright looking thing. And, and for every time a student shares the gospel, one of those lights gets punched through there. They set a goal of sharing the gospel 2,020 times. They wanted to redeem the 2020 number. But they're working on filling up that light board, and they get to keep track. They're measuring out those things. On the back of our youth room, there's a prayer board up. They set a goal of praying for the lost 5,000 times this year as a group. And in our prayer board, there's little papers rolled up and stuck in there. And on each one is the name of a family member or friend who doesn't know Christ that we spend time praying for. See, they're, they're working towards these things and keeping it right in front of them. Maybe you have and need that kind of visual outlook on stuff. Maybe you need that to help you understand what biblical outcomes are. One of their other ones is they want to see 25% new conversion growth in our group this year. That would mean for our numbers, 50 people coming to know Christ and being plugged into a discipling relationship this year. So it's, it's incredible stuff that is measurable, but not all biblical outcomes are numerical. Not all of them are numerical. I want to show you some of these in Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47, where we see the result after the day of Pentecost, and we see these measurable outcomes, these noticeable things in the early church. It says in verse 41, those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day, about 3,000 in all. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, 
and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. I love the biblical outcomes that you can see lived out in them. It reflects what their focus was. The fact that they were caring for each other. That they were willing to give up of themselves to make sure everybody was taken care of in their group. The the fact that they were constantly having opportunities for outreach and taking advantage of them. The fact that they were gathering in fellowship. They were devoted to the teaching of God's word, trusting his apostles. This was the the outcomes that came from them living a gospel-advancing life as individuals and as a group. And it's important that we start thinking this way to measure what is going on in our church and in our homes, in our life groups. These are some of the elements that I saw when I first came and visited Mitchell Berean years ago. Talking with people from the congregation, you could see this in moments These kind of things were there. These kind of things are still there and it's exciting because it reflects what this church is about and we need to keep that before us so that we start striving towards these things, that we start looking for these kind of things, understanding this is what we're called to. The last value, value number seven, an ongoing life reflects this. The way that you live will reflect it. Whatever we have as our priorities, we will always program into our lives. Let me give you an example. If at the end of the day, my priority is that I would get to have some time to decompress, that I'd get to to have some time just to myself, that I'm going to get to watch my show and just decompress with no interruptions, that is going to be reflected in how I interact and react to my family when I come home from work, right? It's going to be reflected in how quickly I try to process through and get stuff done at work and my attitude at work. You see, what our priority is will always be programmed into every element of what we do. And I want to challenge you to think about this. Does your life reflect the priorities of Christ? Does it reflect them at all? Could someone sit down and watch you for a while and go, man, I can clearly see that they are about seeing people know Christ. We need to be thinking this way because as individuals, if we can start living these things out, these values out, it will impact the church and the community in incredible ways. I want to help you with this. Acts 6, 2 through 4, we get to see this lived out in the early church. They've just had their very first... uh, problem rise up that we see listed here. It's this issue where where they've been giving bread out to the widows and orphans and the the Jewish heritage widows are getting their bread before the Greek heritage widows in the church and they're frustrated about that. So they bring it before the apostles say this isn't fair, we're not being treated fairly. The apostles go, all right, well, let's get everybody together and let's talk it out. They bring together the entire assembly and they hear them out. They spend time discussing, they spend time praying and we step in here in verse two looking at the results 
of, of what they felt God was calling them to do. Here's what it says. And so, brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and are full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. You see, the apostles have been called to a specific set of priorities by God that they would be coming to him, seeking wisdom for leadership, and that they would be teaching the word. If they take over a ministry of, okay, we got to make sure that we're, we're evenly dividing this, we're taking care of everybody, they're going to take their priority off of this and focus on this. And that's not what they were called to do. So here's what they did. They said, for us to remain prioritizing what God has called us to, we're going we're gonna to put others in charge of this. And we're going to ask them to have the same core values that we have, but focus it into this ministry. I love that you get to see those core values lived out in one of the guys who was selected. His name is Stephen. Stephen, a man full of the Holy Spirit, who the next time he's mentioned is sharing the gospel. He's taking advantage of the fact that he's in this position to live out a life that reflects these same values. He didn't look at it and say, well, I've got I've to prioritize the bread and who gets it first. He, he looks and says, I need to take care of that while prioritizing into it these values, this call of God. And it's an incredible thing to see. We need to focus in on this and understand that our lives will reflect it. I want to help you with this. There's a paper in front of you. Not everybody's going to get one, but just grab one maybe for your family, for yourself, or for your life group. This is a strategic action plan. I've been using these for about seven or eight years with students and young adults and adults in churches to help plan out what we're going to to do to strategically go at this next year. It's it's a pretty simple thing over in the top right corner. You see there's just a section for putting uh, information down. But one of those things is that Life in Six Words app code there. There's a group code, and there's one there for NBC. Mitchell Berean in that app has a group, and you can see in those groups um, activity that's going on. So if I, if I use that app and I, I uh, open it up and pray for my cause circle, you would see that pop up in that group, and it can encourage and motivate each other to be praying. It also uh, will mention if somebody has shared the gospel or gotten to care for somebody uh, from their cause circle, those kind of things. And you get to see that, encourage each other, keep each other accountable. And, and also, there's some great tools in there to use. You don't have to use that app. It's just an incredible tool that's available to us. This main section here, it says our cause turf. This is your area of influence, your area of reach. This is something that, that you need to identify in your family or in your life group. As a youth ministry, we, we consider our cause turf from the gearing public schools over to moral public schools. That's our area that we focus on. And we strive to, to do our reach within that. That's the area that we're trying to reach, and we have identified over 3,300 students within that area. That's our cause turf for our student ministry. Maybe your cause turf looks different than that. Maybe your cause turf is, is the 15 houses around you on your block, your neighbors. Maybe as a life group, your cause turf is your coworkers. Maybe it's, it's family members that, that need to be part of this. I, I would encourage you to spend some time this week with your group, with your family, or just yourself identifying your, your cause turf because it will help you understand what you can do within the context that you're in. 
This is where that vision gets applied to. And at the bottom, we see this section for that bold vision. Like I shared with you, our students' bold vision is some measurable goals. We have a vision statement, but their bold vision for this year is to see 160 people come to Christ through 2,020 conversations where they share the gospel. They want to pray for the lost 5,000 times and see 25% new conversion growth. These are some of the things that they put down that they want to see. Out on this table, right outside the doors here, are the examples of what we've done with our students. Some that they filled out and some that we've filled out as a result of what they've planned through events like Lead the Cause. And I would encourage you to go look at those, take a picture of them, and, and sit down and start working through it because they may inspire you to think differently about this to come up with some different ideas, but I encourage you to spend some time as a family, as a life group, or as a, an individual praying about this. God, what is the vision for my context? What is my cause turf, and how do you want to see me reach us? What is your bold goals, God, for this year? What is it that you're calling me to? On the back side of this is, is a way to plan out throughout the year some goals for different sections of the year. The first one is through April, where we've got Easter coming up on April 4th. There's already Easter stuff going up into stores. How are we going to take advantage of the fact that people will be thinking about the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus more than any other time of year? How are we going to take advantage of that? How are we going to make the most of that opportunity? We, we write down some ideas, discuss it out, talk it out, and come up with a plan. Well, we're going to invite our neighbors. We're going we're gonna to make up one year, Janae and I, with our church in chapel, made uh, 200 and some baskets to go to every house in chapel that just had an invite to our Easter service. Just inviting them to come. And that was one of the ways that we planned out to think ahead on how we can make the most of this opportunity. Think about stuff. Look, at, look ahead at the summer and start planning some goals of utilizing the different opportunities that come up then to start reaching. Over on this other side, there's ways that you get to mark out what are things that need to be accomplished right now in the next 10 days, 20 days, 30 days to see these things happen and start setting out a plan. We gotta be strategic in this. I know it seems like homework and it kinda is, but I'll I'll just tell you, this has changed the way that, that I do ministry. This has changed the way that I live my personal life. I hang these up as the students give them to me in my office and I pray over them and I put them in front of me. These are my job description throughout the year is to live out what God has called us to. I would love if you go through and do this with your life group or with your family or just you, send me a picture of it so I can hang it up in my office and be praying alongside you for these things. I'd love to be encouraged and to encourage you with these things. But I would challenge you, let's take the month of January to fill these things out. Take some time and pray about it. Talk about it with your life group. Talk about it with your family. And let's fill these out and let's make a plan to see 2021 be a different year when it comes to gospel advancement. Some of you may be looking saying, well, this is kind of weird that we talked about this all day. I don't really understand the importance of this and why this guy seems to be so intense about it. I want to tell you the reason for my intensity, for my passion about this. It's the fact that at one point in my life, I was a sinner separated from God. I was created to be in relationship with him. But because I had sinned, I was separated from him. My sin, sin means that I missed the mark. There was a standard set before me, perfection, and I didn't hit it at all. 
I fell far short. And because of that, I'm separated from what I was created for, and there's no way I can ever be good enough to earn my way back because God requires the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. He doesn't require good deeds. He doesn't require church attendance. Shedding of blood. And out of his love for me, his love for you, he sent his son Jesus who came and willingly shed his blood, paying the debt that you owed to God. Making a way for you to be brought back into restored relationship with God through him and him alone. He died paying the price, and when he rose again, God declared that payment, accepted, and gave him the authority to give you new life right now. And all you have to do is trust in Jesus and him alone, not in your baptism, not in how good you can be, not in your church attendance or anything else, just in Jesus, his death, his resurrection. That's it. And if you're ready today to put your faith in Jesus, to trust in him, I wanna invite you to do that right now. We're gonna pray. And these aren't magic, special, specific words. These are just taking what's going on in your heart and expressing it to God the Father. So if you are ready to put your faith in Christ, I'd ask you just, let's bow our heads together and we're just gonna pray. You just pray this with me. Say, God, I know that I am a sinner I was created to be with you, but because of my sin, I'm separated from you. And God, I know that I could never be good enough to earn my way back. But God, you love me so much that you sent your son Jesus who died in my place and has made a way through him for me to be brought back into a restored relationship with you. God, I know that when Jesus died, it paid the price I owed. And when he rose again, you accepted that payment on my behalf. And that through him, I can have a new life right here and right now. God, I am trusting in Jesus and him alone to save me, nothing else. If you prayed today to put your faith in Jesus for the first time, I want to hear from you. I want you to come talk to me before you leave because I want to come alongside you and help you understand what this means. I have something for you to help you begin this walk of faith. I want you to, to not hesitate to come and see me. I know I'm a little intense and weird and I'm, I'm always like this. So I'm just going to warn you, it's going to be like that. But you know what? Just come talk to me anyways because I would love to come alongside you to join you in this walk, in this journey, and to just celebrate alongside you what's gone on. God, we thank you for today, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity that we've had to study it, and we look forward, God, to all that you're gonna do as a result as we obediently follow, God, your call to be those who are, are disciples, making disciples who make disciples, God, the, the vision of, of boldly carrying the gospel, God, through the power of your spirit in us, God, would you shake our lives, would you shake this church by the power of your spirit, God, and send us from here boldly into our community, into our homes, into our jobs, God, into our schools, to open our mouths and make known the message of the gospel, the power of God to the salvation of everyone who believes. God, would you ignite in us a revival personally in our own hearts that spreads, God, 
Help us to see and be passionate about what you are passionate about, God. Give us your heart, your eyes, your vision, your mission before us, God. We praise you and we thank you for your word. And God, we look forward to all that you're gonna do. In Jesus' name, amen.